that was a great session by Dr. Ortiz and Dr. Hyder uh, Tampton. So for the next session, uh, we're going to talk about balance syndrome, which is characterized by normal visual acuity. Uh, visual fields are also normal, but a mild somatognosia, ocular apraxia, and optic ataxia. This is a really exciting segment for you. We, we don't usually see this kind of stuff, so we hope you stay tuned for this one as well. Thank you. Uh, okay, Dr. Heider, uh, welcome to the second part. Uh, now let's talk about Balin syndrome. Yes, I'm happy to talk about Balin syndrome. Thank you and, for having me once again. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, and yes, and you know, Balin syndrome, I actually have, have seen Balin syndrome in, in the world step three. And it's also very common in the, in the right exam and the neurology boards. Is that correct? Yes, uh, we are often tested on this, and um, it is very useful to know for our exam. Although in the clinical setting, we don't see it as frequently. Yes, I imagine. I think it's, it's more common in the test than on real life. So uh, let's go for the most basic. What are the what is the triad of Balin syndrome? The triad involves somatognosia optic ataxia, and oculomotor apraxia. And what is the cause of Balin syndrome? Balin syndrome is caused by bilateral parietal occipital lesions in the brain. So in the parietal lobe and also the occipital lobe. And you know, I think most residents by the end of training know the, the triad, but it's a little difficult. They know what exactly do they mean each of these symptoms? So if you can help other people understand what's exactly simultognosia and how do you test it? Simultognosia is a type of visual agnosia in which there is an impairment of recognizing visually presented objects. It is the inability to recognize and sort out objects when they appear together, but they can be recognized when presented by or when they appear alone so patients are unable to perceive the overall meaning of a picture or multiple things together although they can describe isolated elements in other words they have a restricted spatial window of visual attention and they demonstrate what you can call a local capture because they only identify local elements of the presented object as opposed to global features. And to answer the second part of your question, you can test it by presenting a patient a photo, much like the, uh, the, the cookie theft picture that we typically present on uh, our NIH stroke assessment, where there is... Um, picture of a mother washing her dishes and there are children who are stealing cookie from the cookie jar. And when you uh, present this picture to a patient, the patient will have difficulty in putting together this scene. However, they will be able to identify the boy. They'll be able to identify the stool on which the boy is standing. They'll be able to identify the dishes, but they cannot put everything together much like me and you can. 
So in order to establish the presence of simultagnosic symptoms, you can uh, ask uh, these patients to describe complex visual displays, uh, such as you would in this cookie theft picture that we have in our NIH focus. That's, that's very interesting, Dr. Haider. I, I didn't know that we can use that test for, because we use that for neglect mainly, right? Yes, it can also be used in uh, neglect and patients in neglect, they will only describe the mother, for instance, and they will not describe the children because they're on opposite sides of, of the picture. Um, in our clinical setting, uh, we once time tested simultognosia by asking the patient to describe a painting that was on the wall. And the painting on the wall had multiple uh, people and multiple elements, and the patient was only able to describe uh, one person at a time or one isolated object at a time, but they were not able to put the entire scene uh, together for us. Wow, that's, 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 that's really interesting. Now let's go with, with this one, optic ataxia. Yes, optic ataxia is also in the triad for Berlin syndrome. And uh, optic ataxia is the inability to guide the hand toward an object or a visual target using visual stimuli. This can be accompanied with impaired hand orientation and grip formation. For example, if you present a patient with a pen, they will have difficulty reaching for it and they will miss it frequently. They will also demonstrate an abnormal finger-to-nose exam, which is uh, also referred to as dysmetria. So optic ataxia can be diagnosed clinically using a finger-to-nose uh, test that we use in our standard neurological examination. So how could we differentiate optic ataxia from the simple ataxia that we because if we do the finger to nose, you could say it's just ataxia. How would we be able to differentiate? You can uh, differentiate it by uh, eliminating visual stimuli and uh, eliminating the need for the patient to depend on the visual stimulus in order to reach for a visual target. Mm, okay, so if, if, if you rely in your other senses, you will be able to reach your target. Is that a fair assessment? Yes. And uh, also, if, if you are concerned that this is something, this ataxia is not a true optic ataxia, but rather a cerebellar ataxia, then you could, um, you could also do other cerebellar parts of the examination and uh, check, do a full assessment of their, whether or not they have nystagmus present, whether or not they have heel to shin dysfunction present, uh, et cetera. Even speech assessment in terms of scanning speech, which is also a cerebellar sinus. Yes, yes, uh, that's, that is very helpful. Now let's go with optic apraxia. What is exactly is optic apraxia? Yes. So the third part of the triad is oculomotor apraxia or optic apraxia. As you said, this is the inability to voluntarily and purposefully guide eye movements. For instance, changing the eyes to a new location of visual fixation. 
The impairment is in the initiation of saccades, and there is also difficulty in suppressing the VOR, which is the vestibular ocular reflex. Therefore, patients have to turn their head in order to pursue a target, and they will often miss or overshoot the target visually. This also can be tested clinically and uh, can be tested during the neurological examination when asking the patient to follow the examiner's finger, for instance, uh, from one side of their visual field to another side of their visual field and even to a peripheral part of their visual field, which would require them to turn their head if they have difficulty with uh, following with eye pursuit. So, so doctor, when you, when, you, when you test the eye movements, you test saccades and, and, uh, and smooth pursuit, right? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. have this. Um, and, and, and the other one is the vesicular-ocular reflex, right? Is, is that preserving optic apraxia or is the, or it's also compromised? The, the problem is in suppressing the VOR uh, reflex. Okay. Not exactly in preserving, but suppressing it. So they have impairment of uh, this ability to cancel that reflex so that they can properly follow voluntarily and purposely a visual target. Okay, okay. And they have probably initiating saccades and smooth pursuit. Is that correct? Precisely. Okay, that's and uh, now doc go let, let's go to the real work. Have you seen Dalin syndrome? Yes, I have seen it twice uh, in the outpatient setting and also in the inpatient setting. In the inpatient setting, it was a patient that had stroke, and in the outpatient setting, it was also a, an elderly patient that had presented as a follow-up after bilateral parietal and occipital strokes secondary to a likely cardioembolic phenomenon. And for your inpatient, I guess he had restricted diffusion, right? Yes, that is correct on the MRI. Okay, okay. Um, and can you tell the audience, uh, just as a reminder, what another MRI do we use to, to prove that is true ischemia? Yes, so in order to prove that this is... Uh, ischemic stroke, you would need to look at a DWI, diffusion weighted imaging sequence, and also an ADC uh, sequence uh, in order to make sure that there is a match and there is uh, an ischemic stroke, acute ischemic stroke. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and what happened with this patient? The, the, it had the, the three components of Balin syndrome? That patient had at least two components of uh, the Balin syndrome, which is the optic ataxia and oculomotor ataxia. The simultagnosia was very difficult to explore because of um, the cooperation of that patient. So, but at least there was optic ataxia, oculomotor ataxia. And the optic ataxia was tested by having the patient um, touch the examiner's finger uh, and uh, the oculomotor apraxia was uh, also assessed by having the patient 
follow the examiner's finger on smooth pursuit and also on initiation of saccades during the neurological assessment at bedside. What are all the visual fields? The visual fields were, were preserved or were compromised? The visual fields were uh, actually were compromised on, um, on the right side because the patient also had predominantly left-sided stroke. Oh, but yeah, but that's really interesting because if he, because you can still have simultaneous for these symptoms. If we cover the other eye, we could check for the other signs, correct? Yes, but uh, this was not done on that uh, uh, on that on that patient. This was the simultaneous was not explored uh, that that well on that patient. Yes, because of the cooperation of the patient. Um, but I guess you have more cooperation with your outpatient, uh, with the patient that you see in the outpatient setting. Can you tell us about that patient? Correct. The patient in the outpatient setting was more cooperative and also unfortunately had a additional comorbidity of neurocognitive dysfunction that could have also been vascular etiology. So she demonstrated all three components of the triad which include the optic ataxia, the oculomotor apraxia, and also the simultipnosia. And the simultipnosia in this patient was tested by asking her to look at a painting on the wall of our office. And she was only able to identify one element at a time on the painting, but she was not able to describe the scene in its entirety. Uh, and uh, additionally, she had difficulty following the examiner's finger without turning her head Finally, she also demonstrated the classical dysmetria, often undershooting or overshooting when asked to touch the clinician's finger. Wow, amazing. Um, I mean, can these patients walk by themselves uh, uh, or they need to be with someone? I mean, how is the life of this person? Oh. If they are having difficulty with uh, their peripheral visual field, they will definitely need assistance to some extent when they're walking. They will need assistance with uh, basic tasks like reading and um, even driving. So life is not life is not a, very easy for them. And um, as far as um, as far as recovery, it can take as long as one to two years. And uh, in the first year, they may have some recovery of their deficits, but it may not be 100%. It may only be up to 30 to 40%. So I haven't seen the patient, I haven't tracked a patient with Bowen syndrome all the way to able to be able to say from experience, but but I'm telling you based off of what I what I know about the current literature on Bowen syndrome. Okay, thank you, Dr. Hyder. That was a fantastic conversation that we have, and we thank you so much for your time. And I don't know if you have any advice for neurologists who are applying to neurocritical care. Yes, um, I think neurocritical here is a great field and neurologists who are interested in this field uh, should have uh, should have no no hesitation in applying 
this is a very exciting time to go into neurocritical care and uh, the field of neurocritical care needs more neurologists um, even though there are there are emergency physicians going into it there are anesthesiology physicians who are who are running your ICUs we we do need neurologists also in the field and so I think any neurologist that is interested in neurocritical care should not hesitate to pursue it okay Dr. Heider thank you so much uh, please uh, take care